This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. You're listening to a reunion radio edition of Women at Work, live from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania during Alumni Weekend. Here again is Laura Zero. Welcome back to our special reunion radio edition of Women at Work. I'm your host, Laura Zaro, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. Very excited to welcome my next guest, Shaz Kong, who is another distinguished Wharton alumna. Um, I'm going to give you a little bit of background on Shaz, and then we're going to start talking and make the best use of what I think is just going to be too little time to even scratch the surface of all the amazing things she's done. After graduating from Cornell with a BS in food science and chemistry, Shaz began her career as a research scientist for Kraft General Food. She then earned her MBA in marketing and finance on full scholarship here at Wharton and transitioned into strategy and operations consulting. At the global consulting firm Kurt Salman Associates, Shaz became the first female non-Caucasian partner in the firm's 70-year history, not to mention one of the youngest. Shaz was most recently a board director and CEO for Jimboree Group, a troubled company that had to file for bankruptcy twice, and just the latest in a string of high-profile roles at companies that include Nike and Lucy Activewear. She advises PE, VC, and hedge funds on retail, footwear, apparel, and activewear companies, and serves as an advisor to retail apparel startups. This Renaissance woman is also a published author and is currently working on her second novel. So, Shaz, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, I'm fascinated by how multidisciplinary you are, and particularly that you started out as a a serious scientist Mm -hmm. and then wound up going to business school. Talk to me about that transition. Uh, well, I really loved science, and I, I so I studied it in, in college, and I had the intent to make a career out of being a scientist. And uh, the job that I, the first job that I had, I was inventing new product prototypes and packaging for food, and I really enjoyed it. It was you know very innovative, really early stage invention. And um, something that I noticed was that we would every, I think, two months, we would put together a list of, you know, 12 to 15 inventions we were working on. We would present it to marketing and then they would select which company or which products to, to invest in and move forward with. And it was curious to me because I thought sometimes the products that they picked weren't the most consumer focused. So I thought about it and I said, you know, I actually think that I could make a better choice. So I, I'd like to run a business someday. And I didn't see any scientists running businesses. So uh, I ended up um, going to Wharton for my MBA and, and doing a complete career switch. Yes, right. So you I, now I understand why you went to Wharton, you mm-hmm. know, why you just said, I'm going to take on the business side of it. For many people who pursue science, it's not a thing they do. It's who they are. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of being creative. What made you drop the science part and go so heavily into, the, ironically, the marketing part? Uh, well, it wasn't just the marketing part. I think what happened was that I one of the things that propelled me to study science was that I really loved uh, challenges and I really loved solving problems. And I think that is still something that is a consistent skill that I have used throughout my career. Uh, but with science, I just found that the opportunities for upward, you know, upward trajectory were limited. <laughs> and I mean, at that time, I didn't see any female CEOs. I certainly didn't see any, you know, any CEOs who had science backgrounds. And I knew that if I wanted to move into that direction, then I really needed to get an MBA. And the other thing, I actually found a mentor, uh, at um, Kraft General Foods because the, my boss and my boss's boss, you know, they weren't the most um, 
I guess, you know, they really, really didn't focus on, on people development. Okay. And I just felt a vacuum there. So I found some, a senior executive in marketing and I approached him and I said, hey, I, I've noticed how you interact with your team. I really admire it. I think I could learn a lot from you. You know, can you kind of be a, a, an informal mentor for me? And we developed a great relationship and he helped. Um, there was an idea I had. He helped me implement it and it saved the company, you know, millions of dollars. So um, so it was a really successful relationship, I think. There's a lot in that that I think is instructive. So, But I want to anchor on um, – I just want to clarify a couple of things first. So in science, rumor has it we also don't find a lot of women there. And it doesn't sound like the role models and the leaders that you were encountering there were women either. I did not. Yeah. I, I mean, when I looked across senior management at uh, in really any function, I didn't see uh, any women really. <laughs> so there was just a complete absence of, of females. So what I did was I said, let me focus on people that I really admire their skills and I see them in action and I think I can learn something from them. So I kind of picked skill role models and I had, you know, a number of them. And I, you know, when I saw somebody who I thought was really talented, I would, you know, try to get to know that person and try to learn from them and try to also contribute to them. But uh, I always tried to make those mentoring relationships two-way relationships. So I was also adding value. And I think that really served me well. It's interesting that you note that uh, the way that you went about it, because um, I feel sometimes like finding a, a mentor is like finding true love. You're looking for chemistry and you hope it you just wind up in a mentoring relationship. But often we really need to seek them out. There are ways that we can do it that are awkward and clumsy and not fruitful. And then there are some ways to make them a little more effective. Mm-hmm. And so talk to me about how you first approached these people that you saw that you wanted to learn from. Well, my boss actually in the science division, he um, held a contest and he said, I'm going to, um, you know, I'm going to take the the top, I think, three ideas for new products to, you know, the new head of R&D. So he said, you know, anybody can enter an idea. And, you know, being an overachiever, I entered, you know, a dozen ideas. (laughs) And uh, later on, I was in his his, um, secretary's office and uh, I noticed that she was retyping my list. And I said, oh, that's my list. And I said, what are you doing? And she said, oh, you know, Bob asked me to retype it. And I, I looked on the screen and he had, she had retyped it, but she put his name on the top. So I said, wow, this guy is actually presenting my ideas as his own. And that really... That's kind of slimy. It was terrible. So I, I, you know, and I'm a very direct person. So I, you know, I calmed down a bit and then I went into his office and I said, look, I I kind of became aware of, of this situation and I'm very uncomfortable with it and I don't think it's right. Good for you. And how old were you when you were doing this? I was just my first job out of college. So you were what, 22, 23 <laughs> I, years old? I think it was 21, yeah. And uh, but said, so I want to applaud the courage and how <laughs> self-possessed you were. Or maybe a little foolish too. <laughs> Thank you. But uh, he said, well, um, your boss is boss and this is how I do things. So you know, like it or not. And so then I went to another senior scientist and I said, hey, I'm, I'm in this situation. Can you help me out? And he said, you know, basically he said, sure, I'll help you out if you do something special for me. And I said, oh, OK, you know, special research project, something like that. And he said, you know, no, I want you to sleep with me. <laughs> that kind of special. Yeah. I said, wow. He really said that that overtly. He did. And I said, but you're married. Why do you need me to sleep with you? I was so, you know, naive. And uh, and I thought, OK, I'm not going to get any help from this guy. I said, no, thanks. Don't don't want to no interest in doing this, your special project. And so <laughs> I happened to be in a meeting with this, you know, senior marketing executive. And I just 
I thought he was really smart and I saw how he interacted with his team and he would give credit to people, generous credit for their ideas. So I went to him and I said, I really, you know, admire what you're doing and how you, you treat your team. And I'd love to, you know, develop a mentoring relationship with you. Well, it's heartbreaking to realize how early in your career you countered that kind of harassment mm-hmm. and lack of integrity. It is heartening to see that you were tuned in and that you found somebody who was a person of character. Yeah, I think one of the key lessons that I learned was you just have to be resourceful. And if you are surrounded by people who are not going to help your career, it's up to you to find the people who will will help your career. And you've got to be proactive about it. So you joked a minute ago about maybe you weren't so smart. But in all seriousness, when you if you were giving advice to young women or any women, anybody who's early in their career so they don't have power within the organization and they're starting to encounter those kinds of situations, um, would you do the same thing again? And what advice would you give somebody for how you confront somebody in those moments? I think, you know, I would still do the same thing again because I think I was brought up to uh, just if I saw some kind of injustice or some, you know, something that was unethical to speak up. And so I just I didn't feel like I could have kept silent about that. And and I think across the rest of my career, I haven't been able to either. But I I think uh, what would have been helpful would have been to maybe talk with some of the other women, because actually what I found out later was some of the other female scientists were um, also encountering the same issues. Yeah, It's usually a pattern. Yeah. And I didn't even I thought it was, you know, isolated, an isolated situation. So I I think I would have tried to find more support across, you know, other female scientists and maybe come up with a solution together that Mm -hmm. we could work on. So, um, yeah, I mean, my advice to anybody starting out in their career is, you know, you have to be clear about what is acceptable to you and what isn't and, you know, and what situations you are going to you know, be comfortable with or not. And you've got to speak up and, uh, you know, look for uh, opportunities to, to build support, your support network around you. So speaking of building a support network, you arrive at Wharton, which we know gives everybody who comes here an amazing support network. But you arrived here already an accomplished creative scientist and um, emerging with a business framework for the way that you were looking at things. For you, what was Wharton about and how did you approach it? Well, Wharton was really about um, learning and opportunity for me because I was making a career shift. And so I would not have been able to make it without coming to Wharton. And I was also very young when I came here. I was only two years out of out of college. And, and most of our MBA students are four or five years out of yes, college. Yes, yes. And so when we were in class discussions, I learned a lot from my, my colleagues because, you know, they would talk about situations where they had difficulty managing a team. And I just, you know, I, I, so I, it was a great benefit for me because I learned from the professors and I learned from the other students and just, you know, working on the team projects together, it helped me learn how to manage, you know, a team, how to, you know, create a unified uh, kind of approach to things. And um, I just, you know, I had a great experience. I learned a lot about business. I learned a lot about people. I learned a lot about, you know, how to manage people. And, um, you know, I was able to make a career shift because of Wharton. This is Women at Work, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. And I'm talking with Wharton alumna, Shaz Kong. And this is our special reunion radio edition of Women at Work here on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. And part of the whole spirit of this weekend is celebrating, you know, what does education do for us? How does it launch us? Um, and the value of coming back to reflect on all of this years later. So, Shaz, I'm thrilled that you're here with us today. Oh, happy to be here. <laughs> so as you were going through your Wharton experiences, particularly your internships and getting ready to launch your career, where were you aiming at this? Because as you're here, you're changing your 
your focus. Um, you're learning all this stuff. You're meeting these people. Where did you want to go? Well, I knew I wanted to run a business or run a company someday. So I really focused on rounding out my skill set and learning everything I could. And I talked to a lot of people who were already, you know, kind of almost in the position of running companies or had run their, you know, family businesses. And I just tried to, you know, be a sponge and absorb as much information as possible and, you know, learn from other people's mistakes. So, um, you know, when I when I left Wharton, I, I feel like I had a good arsenal of knowledge to at least, you know, start the process of preparing myself to run a business or run a company. So when you think about of the early work that you did, um, what gave you the tools, built the muscles that you're using now in business? Is there any, like, what do you think of as the things that most equipped you for the kind of work you're doing now? Well, I think, you know, the, especially some of the classes that I had at Wharton, um, they, the professor would share information, but I think, you know, some of the really great professors invited uh, just critical thinking, um, discussion and, and disagreement about things. And so I really appreciated that. And I think, that kind of uh, critical thinking, critical review of content um, helped me when I went into new situations. I Basically, after Wharton, I started my career in consulting because I thought it would give me the broadest exposure to business problems. So I think the critical thinking ability combined with my scientific um, skills of problem solving were really good combinations. And I think even today when I'm approached with a new situation, I – really try to think of it in different ways. I try to think of it critically. I also think, you know, is this, is this the way that everybody does it? Why does it have to be done this way? So I think being at Wharton really helped me um, just enjoy the love of learning and be a student. And I've, I've continued to be a student in all of the experiences subsequently. It also sounds like you've continued to take on some pretty substantial challenges that um, we could si- oversimplify as calling them business problems as opposed to business opportunities even mm-hmm. though I think part of what you did was to try and find the business opportunities and the problems. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I want to learn about your experience, why you choose to do these, what you've learned from them. But I want to start with a concept that I think has been getting some airtime lately about the glass cliff. You know, we talk a lot about the glass ceiling for women and um, the question of whether women are invited to take on roles in companies and organizations that are in trouble because, well, nobody else wants to do that. We'll let them jump off the cliff and then you're doubly tested. Mm -hmm. So you've walked into a few situations Mm -hmm. that needed some very strong, capable leadership. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about why you chose to do them. And do you think this concept of the glass cliff related? That's an interesting, yeah, it is an interesting concept and interesting <laughs> question. Uh, I think, you know, probably the the first experience I had was when I was at Nike. I was recruited to Nike and I negotiated to be able to run a business um, at some point uh, before I came on board. So I was asked to, actually, I was asked to take a look at the global cycling business. They had been really having trouble. It had been run for a, six or seven years by a professional cyclist. And they said, can you fix the marketing? And so I took a look at it. And I said, you know, I'll come back to the CEO, the co-presidents. And I said, I'll come back and let you know. So I said, yes, I can fix the marketing. But that's not what the problem is. The problem is the business is broken. The strategy is, you know, the wrong strategy. They're not focusing on the right consumers. There's a lot of problems with the product. I can fix the whole thing. So I said, you guys told me I could run a business. I think this is a business I can run. So they put me in charge. And uh, it was very challenging because the most of the team was male. 
And I remember going around to meet everybody and everybody asked me the same two questions. They said, number one, what do you know about the business of cycling? And number two, what do you know about the sport of cycling? And I was very honest. I said, not much, but I do know how to ride a bicycle. (laughs) (laughs) But they did not appreciate that joke. Uh, But, you know, I said, look, I I know how to run a a business. I know how to, you know, I know how to turn around a business. I know how to turn around a brand. And I'm going to learn about the cycling stuff from you guys. So let's let's work together and, and, you know, turn this around. And people were very resistant. And it actually, it actually kind of uh, gave a hit to my confidence. And then I just took a step back and I said, wait a minute. This is the same team that's work, been working on this business for seven years. They've never made a cent. Surely I cannot do any worse. So <laughs> I said, I'm just going to go for it. So I was like, all right, this is what we're going to try. And I did a lot of things to get these guys out of their comfort zone. I um, approached the different the, the business in a completely different way and uh, got them to appreciate a different point of view. And I had a few quick wins. And I think once we got some momentum built – I was able to maintain that credibility and build it over time. And we got the business profitable within a year and we grew revenues 300%. That's pretty amazing, Shaz. Thanks. I was pretty happy. (laughs) Appropriately so. So I want to break some of it down because I want to explore some of it to understand it more deeply. Um, I'm a big believer that when you're hiring, there are things that you can teach people. There are things that you can't teach people. You want to hire people for the things that you can't teach. Mm-hmm. And the things that you can teach, you could teach them. Mm-hmm. Like you could learn about cycling. Mm-hmm. Um, how, if you were going to give advice to your former self about how to help the people in the organization see that you could learn that, what would you, what kind of advice would you give? I probably would have studied all the, you know, sprinters and climbers and cycling uh-huh. and thrown out a few names before I uh, took the job. But I mean, I did read every magazine on cycling and, you know, every sports magazine. And, you know, I I think at the end of the day, I thought I'm never going to, you know, outmaneuver or outknowledge these guys in, you know, their knowledge of the, you know, the history of these different athletes, these different cyclists, you know, the different bicycles, you know, all of the different. So I was like, yeah, I can study it and, and I can learn it. But I think the best thing for me to do is help them figure out, you know, what's wrong with the business and how to look at it in a way that they've never seen it before. And actually my first meeting with them, I I called a cross-functional meeting. We had a huge conference table and we also – the business had the highest apparel returns in the company. So I said, why do we have such high returns with apparel? And people said, I don't know. So I I laid out about 30 pairs of cycling shorts on the table and I said – you know, I held up like an iPod Nano or iPod Shuffle and I said, OK, I'll give this, this is a prize to whoever can correctly guess the size of all of these shorts on the table. Some were huge. Some were tiny. So, you know, people were like extra large, small, extra small. You know, we went down the line. I said, guess what? They're all medium sized. I said, we're not using standardized sizing specifications or fit blocks. That is why our returns are so high. And, you know, people were like, wow, we we didn't realize that. And I thought, you know, all right, I'm a new person and this is my first meeting. And I just showed them something about their business that they had never considered. Before. So it makes me think that part of learning about cycling, that some of it was to be conversant about the business, but some mm-hmm. of it was really about building social trust more than it was enabling you to do the job more effectively than you would otherwise. Yeah, I think part of it was, yes, you definitely, you know, had to show that you knew you had knowledge about the the business, cycling business and the sport. But I think the other piece of it was you had to, you know, uh, and I call it ABC, O 
always always be confident. You had to bring this confidence and knowledge and share that and and have these guys kind of step back and say, wait a minute, this person is talking about something that I've never seen before and I've never looked at the business this way before and, you know, maybe they've got something to offer and I should listen. And I think doing that, I mean, you know, doing that consistently and just, you know, being persistent about continuing to do that uh, really helped me break through. And, you know, and I, there was one guy, guy in Europe who, you know, he would, he was supposed to be on our conference calls and he, and he would say, oh, I'll be on the call. And then he wouldn't show up. And, you know, he was driving me crazy. So I, I went to Europe. I, I was like, what event is he going to be at? I showed up the, at the event. I didn't tell anyone. And I was like, hey, you know, it's me. And he said, oh, and he said, wow, I, you know, I wasn't expecting you. I was like, yeah, I thought we could, you know, sit down and talk about the business. And because and he was like, oh, you know, I'm running Europe and, you know, um, you, you're running, you know, other stuff. It doesn't matter. I said, well, I'm actually running the global business. So we need to work together to make it successful. And he said, oh, it's already su- successful in Europe. And I said, actually, it's not. It's not profitable. We're losing money. So we need to make it, you know, make it make money. And I said, you know, tell me what your ideas are. Here's what I'm thinking. And I think the reason why he had been so resistant was because his ideas weren't solicited before that. So um, he felt very, you know, just protective, I guess, of mm-hmm. his business. And I think once he saw that, you know, it was going to be a much more collaborative atmosphere, he was more open. So he ended up being one of the biggest contributors. And, you know, he did a fantastic job. And, you know, we still keep in touch to this day. It's uh, fascinating to hear about the, the confidence arc. That, and I appreciate your candor in saying that there were parts in the beginning that were hard, but ABC, always be confident. Talk to me more about that. I think especially in a very male-dominated industry or company, is, and if you're a woman leader, I think if you come in and say, oh, the first thing you say, hey, what does everybody else think? You know, what do you think I should do? What should the strategy be? Let's vote on it. You know, <laughs> you're going to get killed. So I, I think you have got to have a clear vision of, all right, this is where the business needs to go. You have to have ideas about the strategy that you want to deploy. You've got to have some innovative thoughts on how you can get there. And, you know, you've got to get people excited about it. And, you know, I said, this is a small business, guys. You know, we're under the radar, but I think we can be profitable, number one. I think we can be, you know, the number one brand in cycling and, you know, maybe a couple of years. And, you know, I said, we can really do something that is extraordinary. And I said, we can act as entrepreneurs within a larger company and, you know, and turn this thing around. So let's go for it. And I I was able to get them motivated. And basically every single person I I met with people individually and, you know, I, I would say like the marketing person, I sat down and I said, okay, here's 10 cycling magazines. You know, what is different about how people are presenting their brand? And are we doing it in the same way? Are we doing it in some distinctive way? And so we, you know, we kind of brainstormed about it. And also we were, we were actually, um, in introducing a brand new product. And he said, oh, we'd have to wait until May. I said, why? He said, that's, that's when everybody introduces new products. And I said, well, let's do it in January because there's no news happening. <laughs> we can get total coverage. We'll get in all the magazines we want and, you know, we'll get a lot more buzz. So, and we can start building interest so we know what our sales could potentially be. So we did that. And, you know, and so we just did a few things, different things like that, that worked. And then, you know, once we got that traction, people, and I just said, okay, now, now, you know, you run with it. You think of other ways to do this. So I I think I was able to get people excited. So they were able to execute. In the spirit that there's 
um, nothing's funny without some truth to it. I always say, you know, that's the way we've always done it to me as a red flag to do it differently. And it seems like that was a big part of the culture change that you brought mm-hmm. in with you as you go in. And I'm guessing repeatedly as you walk into organizations that need to change quickly. Yeah. I mean, we did, uh, we were doing the Tour de France. We were sponsoring the Tour de France. And I, you know, I said, do we have anything special? It's, you know, one of the biggest, atten- uh, biggest events that's attended by tourists. You know, do we have anything that tourists would like to buy? And they said, oh, we have, you know, T-shirts, replica jerseys. I said, why don't we do a bag? And they said, oh, you know, Shaz, that would take, you know, two years to do the bag. And I said, two years. And the cycle time at Nike was actually 18 months at that time. So it was pretty close. <laughs> but I said, it's a bag. You know, we should be. I know this was like end of February. And they said, we have to have the product in the stores by end of May. And so, you know, we didn't have that much time. And I said, all right, well, I might ask you guys, some of you guys for help. And people were like, forget it. You know, we're not going to do it. And so I, I found a, you know, I found an early bag design from Europe. Uh, I found a, a bag manufacturer that was already uh, Nike approved and Quick Turn, and um, I had a few other guys help me, and we got this bag. Uh, it was embroidered and laser nice. printed, yeah, and we got the bag designed, developed, delivered to the stores in under two months, which was a record at Nike. And we priced it at 100 euros, and it sold out. And um, I also had a bag made up for each of the senior executives, and I said this bag was designed, developed, delivered to the stores in under two months, and these are the people who made it happen. That's amazing. Yeah, so people, I think. The next time I had a crazy idea, people were like, oh, okay, Shaz, maybe that'll work. (laughs) (laughs) Shaz, it's so inspiring and instructive to hear the way that you grew and the way that you framed change within these organizations. We don't have enough time to even start talking about your work as an author. Um, So briefly, we only – we have barely a minute left. Um, If people want to learn about your book and get ready for the next one that you're going to write, where can they find you? Uh, Well, the book is called The Closer and it's available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, but uh, I'll also have a uh, website. It's uh, ceilingsmashers.com. And the reason why I wrote the book was because I wanted to present women business leaders in a positive and inspirational light because I had not been reading any fiction where I was seeing characters that represented true people that I've Right. You see Cruella DeVille. You don't see amazing, creative game changers like yourself. Yeah. And you. Well, thank you. (laughs) And so um, when can we look for your next book on the shelves? Um, It'll probably be holiday time, I think. Okay. Well, let us know when it's out. We can continue to talk some more. I've been thrilled to have you here. So what else are you going to do reunion weekend? Uh, I'm just, I've just been enjoying connecting with friends and reminiscing about old times (laughs) and getting together with some professors. So it's been great. Well, thank you for taking time out of all that fun to spend a half hour here with us on Women at Work. It's been my pleasure, Laura. Thank you. Um, Thank you, everyone, for listening today. If you have a question about anything you heard, you can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter at BizRadio132. I'm at Laura Zarrow. You can also find us on iTunes. A special thanks to my producer, Patty Hall, and I'm so excited to see my beloved sound engineer, Danielle Bruno, back in the booth. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to a reunion radio edition of Women at Work here on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 